0: So our third panel of the day was called Building Power, Bold Visions for a Green New Deal. And the idea here was really like, okay, there are some difficult issues to deal with. There are some challenges we need to be aware of. we got to do this thing. This is like the Yes We Can panel. Um, Yes We Can mixed in, not just the politics and the kind of rah-rah-rah, but also some really you know, intense, heavy, and brilliant thinking about the built environment. So we had, first of all, Stephanie Kelton, uh, an economist at Stony Brook. She's been a chief economist for um, Democrats in the Senate. Stephanie Kelton is a pioneer in modern monetary theory. She's really, really led the debate in economics on kind of realizing that we have enormous capacity to spend money on the things that we need, and we heard from her make a very compelling account. Um, And what I thought was just brilliant is that she kind of built up the argument to talk about a John Maynard Keynes, you know, the economist uh, pamphlet that he wrote, you know, on the eve or at the beginning of World War II called How to Pay for the War, and talked about how that's not a story of, oh my God, where am I going to find the money? It's a story of how are we going to mobilize resources to simply do the thing that has to get done. Following Stephanie Kelton, we had Kate Aronoff. Um, this is going to be really interesting because I'm looking at Kate while I'm going to describe what she did. No, that would be wrong. But
1: Tread carefully.
0: <laughs> Kate did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> Kate did a great job. 10 out of 10. No, Kate, honestly, she really brought it on the fossil fuel industry. I mean, she really just laid out exactly how responsible the fossil fuel, fossil fuel industry is for this problem. Now we need a massive coalition to take it down. So Kate did it a great job. Thanks, like Daniel. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could go on for hours about how great Kate is, um, and I do, just not normally right in front of her. Um, okay, so moving along. Next, we had Peggy Diemer from Yale in the Architecture Lobby. Architecture Lobby is a group of architects who are on the left, who are all about unionizing architecture, who are all about restoring architecture as a kind of public service. And you'll just hear it, but Peggy Deemer went to town on liberalism and the architectural profession, went to town on the illusions of aesthetics as a solution to every problem. I mean, she really went to town. Um, And it was great. And you're going to hear a lot of it coming right up. And that was followed up by Kate Orff, uh, MacArthur, genius grant winner, a very visionary designer, landscape architect, um, written a great book about pipelines and oil infrastructure in the country. And she gave us a really fascinating take on how, in the best case scenario, design can really be a kind of process for bringing very different groups of people all together to the table to make big changes to their landscapes that will make their lives Better. And then we closed out with Varshini Prakash, who is the executive director of the Sunrise Movement. And you'll hear it. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, Varshini was the one speaker who refused to stand behind the podium, who led us in song, sings beautifully, uh, and just laid out in an extremely crisp, simple, straightforward way the most compelling theory of change that I've heard. Um, and it has everything to do with climate change and everything to do with realigning American politics around saving the conditions for human life uh, and putting justice at the very center of a climate movement that can win. So this was like, by the end of this panel, I was like, I was on fire.
2: It was amazing. I wanted to like run through a wall afterwards.
0: Glad you
1: didn't.
2: Yeah, I mean, it would have ruined the keynote introductions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the problem with falling bricks is that it's just...
2: <laughs> I mean, you Finish blast a hole in, in a wall.
0: Uh, you know, the insurance company calls, Like, it's, it's just not a great event management
2: yeah. We would have been charged for that. Pen is very cheap. <laughs> Pen is cheap. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so this panel was great. Um it got me got me pumped up.
2: Um <laughs>
1: <laughs> How pumped were you, Daniel?
2: Related to like a pumped object. <laughs> <was> something... Basketball <laughs> breast milk.
0: <laughs> Weirdest possible answer. <laughs> Look, man, feminism takes us to unexpected places. So this is the panel that Billy and I actually moderated. It's very strange because the three of us are sitting around talking about ourselves right now, um, which is actually not uncommon. Just it's on the air now. Just usually
2: Daniel does all the talking and it's just about himself. But we get a little bit of airtime now, too.
0: Look, did I invent being a white man who talks about himself? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so Billy and I moderated this panel, um, we interacted with the guests like Kate. So in this case, what we're actually going to do is just include the moderated section. And so instead of hearing, you know, our take on the panel and then hearing the panel, you'll just hear the whole thing straight through. Um, Billy and I had a bit to say. The conversation was fantastic.
2: Um, So we're just going to run the whole thing for you. I will say my favorite tweet of the conference came as a result of this panel, which I don't remember who tweeted it, but they tagged you in it so we could find it. They said, you know, something like find someone who loves you as much as Daniel Aldana Cohen loves Red Vienna, which is maybe the best tweet I've ever read.
1: Daniel does love Red Vienna. I am
0: my honest relationship advice is find yourself somebody who loves you as much as I love Red Vienna. I mean, it's like a river of love, so Very much strong. love, a
1: giant avenue of love, flanked by public housing,
0: flanked by public housing, built yeah. by beautifully built socialists, built yes, gloriously built public housing. And I think this, you know, what I'm just. It doesn't get said enough. It's like, okay, Red Vienna, socialist, it ended. Red Vienna ended. Red Vienna built housing for 10% of the workers in Vienna. But now there is even more public housing. Now one-third of the housing is public. One-third of the housing is cooperative. And something, I'll just say this because I didn't say it on the, in the discussion, just because you can't say everything always. But Next conference. Next conference. The thing that is always chips people up is Austria is a racist country with a very vicious right. Um, and Vienna has this amazing social democracy. So it would be tempting to believe that this is another case of right-wing racist social democracy. But in in Austria, it's not quite that. It's that you have a kind of racist right-wing area outside of Vienna, and in Vienna, in the public housing, is actually where tons of the immigrants live and are the bastions of the left, electorally and increasingly organizationally. So um, this is not a case of a kind of vicious, racist, imperialist project that also includes public housing, but this is really a project from below that has turned into a multiracial, working-class project, beautiful housing, carbon emissions through the floor, one euro a day public transit.
1: This is all just an ad for Daniel's Socialist Travel
2: podcast. Daniel's new center is sponsored by Red Vienna. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And in this podcast, you will hear over and over about my one trip to Red Vienna. (laughs) (laughs) Truly the best
1: Europe has to offer.
0: So with that, we're just going to go right into the panel
2: yeah, so for this panel, we asked Priyanka Shah, who's one of the, the sort of leaders of the Architecture Lobby, to introduce the panel. Uh, the Architecture Lobby was an incredible partner in this entire event. Uh, Peggy, who's on the panel, was sort of the, one of the founders and is also one of the leaders of the Architecture Lobby. And Priyanka is really like the driving force in their New York chapter. And um, she did a great job. I, I wish we could have had her on the panel.
1: I'll say one quick thing. I didn't want to talk too much because I you're about to hear me talk a lot. But... If you are following along, as you may have been throughout this series, with our slides, I, uh, my one regret from this from this panel, I'll reflect deeply afterward, um, is uh, is that I didn't, you know, include a, a face of, uh, of Rex Tillerson or Darren Woods or Ben Buren, the uh, fossil fuel executives I, I talk about. So, if you're listening, I would encourage you to go and and you know familiarize yourself with the faces of these. These goals.
0: So, one supplementary request once you've Googled the faces of these fossil fuel executives, go to Jacobin or just go to Google, Google Katie Arnoff, Rex Tillerson, Hague, crimes against humanity.
1: Hashtag Rex for
3: Hague. there was ever a moment for bold new visions, our collective planetary existential crisis on a 10-year tipping point would be it. We don't lack for technology or for design chops. We really lack for engagement, social consensus, and political will. If that was not clear until this morning, the last two panels have made it abundantly crystal. So this next panel is about building that power, bold new visions for uh, a Green New Deal. The panelists are Stephanie Kelton. Stephanie is a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. She's a leading expert on modern monetary theory and a former chief economist on the U.S. Senate Budget Committee, Democratic staff. She was named by Politico as one of the 50 most influential people in the policy, in policy debate in America. Professor Kelton advises policymakers and consults with investment banks portfolio manager, and portfolio managers acro- across the globe. She's a regular commentator on national radio and broadcast television. Her highly anticipated book, The Deficit Myth, will be published on June 9, 2020. Kate Aronoff, who is one of the organizers of today's conference. Kate is a Brooklyn-based independent writer covering climate and American politics, a contributing writer to The Intercept, and a fellow with the Type Media Center. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Descent, Rolling Stone, and Harper's, among other outlets. She was previously a writing fellow at In These Times. Kate is editing a forthcoming anthology about democratic socialism in America, set to be published by the New Press in 2020. She is also writing a book about the politics of climate change, The New Denialism, to be published by Bold Type Books also in 2020. (laughs) How do you do all of this? Our very own Peggy Deemer of the Architecture Lobby. <laughs> Peggy Deemer is Professor Emeritus of Architecture at Yale University and Principal in the firm of Deemer Studio. She's the founding member and the content coordinator of the Architecture Lobby, a group advocating for the value of architectural design and labor. Peggy is also the editor of Architecture and Capitalism, 1845 to the present, and the architect as worker, immaterial labor, the creative class, and the politics of design. She's co-editor of Building in the Future, Recasting Labor in Architecture, BIM in Academia, and Rereading Perspecta. Her work has appeared in Log, Avery Review, Eflux, and Harvard Design Magazine, amongst other journals. Kate Orff. Kate is the founder of Scape and a MacArthur Fellow. (laughs) Kate focuses on retooling the practice of landscape architecture relative to the uncertainty of climate change and fostering social life, which she has explored through publications, activism, research, and projects. She's known for leading complex, creative, and collaborative work processes that advance broad environmental and social perspectives. Kate was awarded the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant in 2017, the first given in the field of landscape architecture. Kate was named a 2012 United States Artist Fellow and Elle Magazine Planet Fixer and shared Scapes' design methodologies at the International TED Women's Conference in 2010. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in political and social thought from the University of Virginia with distinction, and earned a Master in Landscape Architecture from the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University. Kate is also the director of Columbia University's GSAPS Urban Design Program. About 150 of them are here today. (laughs) Varshini Prakash. Varshini is the executive director and co-founder of Sunrise. (laughs) A movement of young people working to stop climate change. Take back our democracy from big oil and elect leaders who will fight for our generation's health and well-being. As an undergrad at the University of Massachusetts, she took on the fossil fuel industry by pushing her university to stop investing in coal, oil, and gas. She led the campaign to victory... She led the campaign to victory after a two-week-long escalation involving thousands of students, alumni, and faculty. Varshini has been a leading voice for young Americans, including last fall when she helped lead a mass demonstration for the Green New Deal that went viral and put climate change on the map for Congress. Varshini's work has been featured in The New Yorker, Democracy Now!, Teen Vogue, BBC, Washington Post, and more. She was recently named to grist top 50 fixers for people cooking up the boldest, most ambitious solutions to humanity's biggest challenges. Varshini currently lives in Boston, Massachusetts. And finally, the moderators for tonight and the co-organizers of this conference, Daniel Aldana Cohen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where where he directs the Social Spatial Climate Collective, or SC2. He recently returned from a fellowship year at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton in New Jersey from 2018 to 2019. Daniel Daniel works on the politics of climate change, investing the intersections of climate change, political economy, inequalities of race and social class, and political projects of elite and social movements in in the global cities of the North and South. His work has been published in Jacobin, The Nation, Descent, and The Gardening, among many others, along with Kate Aronoff, Thea Riofrancos, and Alyssa Battistoni. He is the the co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal from Verso in 2019. Billy Fleming. Billy is the Wilkes Family Director of the E. N. L. McHarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania. His work is focused on the physical design and policy design of our response to climate change, and his work has been published in City Lab, The Guardian, Descent, and Houston Chronicle, among others. Along with Frederick Steiner, Richard Weller, and Karen McCloskey, he is the co-editor and co-curator of Design with Nature Now book, uh, Lincoln 2019, and exhibits now on view in the Meyerson Gallery. Along with Carolyn Kewski and Alan Berger, he is the co-editor of the Adaptation Blueprint with Island Press out in 2020. Billy is the author of, of the forthcoming book, Drowning America, The Nature and Politics of Adaptation with Pen Press and a co-author of The Invisible Guide and a former junior staffer in Obama, in the Obama administration's White House Domestic Policy Council. You can find his extremely perfect dog, Pepper, on his Twitter feed. (laughs) Take it away.
4: Good afternoon.
0: Stephanie Kelton.
4: (laughs) What's the matter? What's the matter? No, they're just no one answered. No one answered. I know, like, good afternoon. This event is amazing. Don't go to sleep yet. Um, I am just delighted to be part of what I think is going to be a really historic event. I want to say thank you again to the organizers, Kate and Billy and Dave, for the invitation to be here. And also thank you to the various staff and all of the people who work so hard behind the scenes to put on events like these. It is no small thing. So thank you to all the people who we often forget about. So. Um, Look, I'm an economist. I'm going to try not to be boring. Uh, I'm a yes-we-can kind of economist, so I'm going to introduce you to a few uh, who aren't like me, but I want to try to get us to think like this little beaver because this little beaver has it all figured out, okay? This little guy has a problem he wants to solve. The environment is inhospitable. He needs shelter he needs a place to stay safe from threats. He needs to be warm, he needs to be secure. So what does he do? He says, you know, I gotta, I gotta take care of myself. So I gotta, I gotta find the money to, to build a dam, right? So where does he go? To the riverbank, of course. No, he doesn't. This little beaver is lucky, and the reason he's lucky is because he doesn't have to worry about how to pay for it, you see? This little guy goes and he finds the resources he needs. What does he need? He needs a tree, He gotta get a tree. So you fell a tree and you take the parts of the tree and you construct what it is that you need, a safe habitat, right? He is only concerned, he doesn't need building permits, there are no property rights to deal with, he just needs the real resources to construct the dam to keep his family safe, okay? And so what I want us to do is Try to think a little bit like the beaver for the next 12 or so minutes, okay? This, I'm gonna borrow some of this incredible artwork from the Intercept AOC video, and this is Molly Crabapple, so I wanna give her credit because I'm not just gonna borrow from her, I'm also gonna play around a little bit with some of what she's done. But look, this idea, you can't be what you can't see, is really important. The vision that has been laid out here by all of the previous speakers and by all of the people in the room today, what we're trying to imagine is truly transformative right? We're talking about things that touch every aspect virtually of our economy and not just here in the U.S. but globally. How do we make these kinds of investments, these transformative changes in everything from not just energy but transportation, agriculture, housing, the whole of it. How do we do it in an inclusive and in a just way? How do we bring everyone along? And that's what the vision is And as they say in the video, we don't have a lot of time to act. So whether you say 10 years or whether you think the time span, time horizon is a little bit longer, we don't have a lot of time and we have to change just about everything. And that includes the way we think about money and taxes and deficits and debt. And you heard in previous conversations today that some of what seems impenetrable in terms of our politicians and working legislation through the process, some of the hurdles that come up, how are you gonna pay for it? Where are you gonna get the money? How are you gonna finance it? How much do taxes have to go up? Whose taxes have to go up? How much will it add to the deficit? What will it do to the debt ratio? And on and on. I'm asking us for the moment to set those things aside. Think like the beaver. Okay? Because this is how they plan to beat us. And we talked about this in the last panel. The think tanks are out. The ammunition is out. The guns are out. The lobbyists are out. The special interest groups are out. They're gunning for this thing. And they think that they know where the weak spots are. Okay? They are going to play off of the public spheres. And straight from the video, AOC says, we knew we needed to save the planet, but people were scared. They said it was too big, it's too ambitious, and the network of lobbyists and think tanks went to work doing their job. So they haul out people like the former director of the Congressional Budget Office to say, $93 trillion, too big, scary numbers, right? Put the fear of God in people, make everyone think that this is something we can't do. It's out of reach. The economists fall in line, not all of them. Some of us are good. But there are a lot of them who are going to fall in line and who are going to repeat these talking points and reinforce these ideas. Everyone from people at the most conservative think tanks to popular bloggers to former Treasury secretaries, they will say, it's not a realistic calculus. It would spend us into oblivion. It's fiscally catastrophic. And the public will be told this. And the politicians will hear this. And the resistance will build. How are you gonna pay for it? The big elephant in the room that's designed to shut it all down. So not only can we not be what we can't see, but we can't have what we can't afford. And we have to understand how to afford this. How are we gonna pay for it? How should it work? The Republicans are clearly already using this talking point. Look, the Green New Deal is what? It's unaffordable. It's unaffordable. They're capitalizing on the public's fear of big numbers. It's mega pneumophobia, right? It's a fear of very big numbers. (laughs) It's a real disease. So they'll throw these numbers around and they'll say, you know, whether it's 16 trillion or 93 trillion. By the time you put trillions in, does it really matter? You know, you just start whipping up a frenzy. People get very, very afraid. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about this. I could do, and I I just finished teaching an entire PhD course at the New School on modern monetary theory. So believe me, I can go on for a semester. I'm not gonna do that to you, but I will tell you that there is an approach within macroeconomics that shows us how to put this, content, put this question in a different context. And I'm gonna give you just a little bit about what it is that I think we should do when we approach the pay-for question and how we ought to be thinking, because guess what? We have been here before. We've done this and we're talking about a New Deal. We're talking about a Green New Deal. We did this during the Great Depression. That's when the New Deal happened. Not at a time of great prosperity, I might add, right? This was in the depths of the Great Depression. And somehow, way, we managed to introduce all of these programs and introduce the Green New Deal. So, not only did we do the Green New Deal, but then right on the heels as the thing is, is underway, we do what? We enter World War II. Now we've got a massive transformation of the US economy in a, a way where we mobilized resources the likes of which had never been seen before, okay? So you have mass mobilization of an economy that is oriented around producing for consumer goods to one that immediately has to be transformed to producing for the war effort. Okay. That, like the Green New Deal, touched every aspect of the US economy. It was an enormous undertaking. How did they do it? Well, one of the things they did was they listened to John Maynard Keynes, which is generally a pretty good idea. Keynes wrote a little book called How to Pay for the War. And my position has been, for a pretty long time now, that we ought to use this as a blueprint to organize our thinking about how to go about approaching something on this similar scale with respect to the Green New Deal. So what did Keynes say in this little book? Guess what? It's called How to Pay for the War, and it has absolutely nothing to do with finding the money to pay for World War II. Nothing to do with that. So what is it about? It's about how to roll out, how to transform the economy and roll out the investments that are going to be needed in a way that is just. He actually cared about that. That the people who were gonna have to make the greatest sacrifices in terms of the war effort would receive the greatest benefits on the back end when the war was over. And to do it in a way that allowed the government to invest massively without creating Inflation! The whole entire book is about inflation mitigation. Inflation risk. This is a little document the US Treasury produced. The United States was watching very closely. It hadn't yet entered the war, but they started circulating documents saying, look, we better pay attention to the way they're doing it because if we get involved, we're gonna have to figure out how to do this without creating an inflation problem. So what happened? The U.S. government massively increases spending, and there are a variety of controls in place, smart offsets and various um, restrictions, reforms, incomes, policies, and a whole range of things. But by God, they managed to do it in a way that didn't let inflation spiral out of control. And the reason is that they carefully thro- thought through the necessary steps to integrate, to, to put this thing into place, without creating inflation. So how did they mitigate the inflation risk? That's what was important. So my position is that we ought to start with three questions. Forget the money piece for the moment. Ask what, like the beaver, right? What are the resources we need? That's what we need to do first. You need to study carefully this problem. What are we going to do? How much are we going to spend? In which ways are we going to transform industries, occupations, bringing people along? What are the resources we need, real resources? What are the resources we currently have available? And where do we get the rest? How do we free up the rest? And that's what the, that's what the little book that Keynes wrote was all about, okay? so. Depending on what your vision of the Green New Deal is, how ambitious, you need more or fewer real resources. Obviously, there are lots of different proposals. We've heard some talked about today. Where do you get the people? Well, you have 15 to 20 million people, let's say, available to you today, unemployed. Do you want to go into the part-time working, uh, but would like to work full-time? There are lots and lots of people available. You've got factories operating well below full capacity. Take the low-hanging fruit, that is the resources that are currently available to you, and then recognizing that you're probably going to need more than the low-hanging fruit, where can you get additional resources? Look, Medicare for all is an incredible opportunity with respect to the Green New Deal. Medicare for all transitions us away from a healthcare system that eats up 18% of our GDP to one that maybe takes 15% of our GDP. Look, if you free up 3% of US GDP, that's a lot of real resources. If the private health insurance industry largely disappears, that's a lot of resource capacity you have just freed up. If you do something with respect to criminal justice reform, we have presidential candidates talking about dealing with the fact that we've got two million people locked up. How do we cut that number in half in four years? If you have suddenly a million more people available to you, that is real resources. If you do something with defense, that frees up real resources. The finance industry, that frees up real resources. So there are a lot of ways to do this in terms of spending, in terms of transitioning away to different programs, in terms of a variety of different uh, policies that free up real resources. And so I want to mention that the job guarantee has already been discussed. The job guarantee is an incredible opportunity to deal with climate change and also create additional fiscal space, create additional resources for the Green New Deal. The point is, if we were back in 2008... God forbid, right? The wheels had just come off the economy. You got 800,000 people a month losing their jobs. The economy goes into a tailspin. You have lots and lots of capacity in the economy to hire up people, make investments, spend into the economy, and there's not a whole lot of inflation risk in an environment like that. The closer you get, to something that looks like full employment, where resources become constrained, the more important it is to begin to think about how to spend safely into the economy without creating the inflationary pressure. This was Keynes's point. The benefit of starting in the Great Depression, of course, is that you have lots of resources available. So we're starting from a different place. So we have to first ask, how much capacity is there in the economy to safely absorb any new investments we would like to make today without the offsets, okay? And this is where there is some really interesting work being done Uh, There are Italian economists. There are uh, British economists. People are starting to try to ask this question, which is, suppose the federal government wanted to spend, I'll pick a number, $2 trillion. That's the number that they're talking about with respect to infrastructure, right? Trump, Pelosi, Schumer, they all got together. They said, let's do $2 trillion of infrastructure investment. And they had a conversation. Everybody nodded and said, that's a good number. We all agree. And then what happened? How are you going to pay for it? The Democrats said, we'll roll back your tax cuts. Trump said, the hell you will. And the whole conversation broke down and we get nothing. So what I'm suggesting is, look, look at the new research. There is research out there that suggests that right now in the US available to us today is at a minimum 500 billion in non-inflationary fiscal space available to us today. In other words, we could do two trillion dollars of infrastructure investment over the next four years without offsets. Do you think that increases the possibility of moving legislation? Democrats want it, Republicans want it. If you could do it and you could make the case that The offsets aren't necessary, the tax increases, the pay-fors that usually hang up legislation in Washington because we can do this in a way that is fiscally responsible in the sense that it doesn't create an inflation problem and possibly have a chance at passing that legislation versus saying the only way we get infrastructure is if we can fully offset it, pay-go, raise taxes on someone, then Republicans won't vote for it, and then we get nothing. Okay, so my approach is to always at least start with the premise that it is possible the economy can handle a dollar of spending without requiring that you rip a dollar out, right? That's our approach is this pay idea that gets us in all kinds of trouble. So very quickly, I'm saying look for the fiscal space use what you have, and then create what you need. And in creating what you need, that could be done through Medicare for all, that could be done through defense, that could be done through criminal justice reform, there are a variety of ways to do that. Ending fossil fuel subsidies, you just start doing the math, and very quickly you can arrive at something like a trillion and a half in available fiscal space. This is how Keynes approached it. These are some of the lessons of the past that I think it would be useful to us to um, bring back into the conversation today, and And with that, I'm just going to say let's not overthink it. There's a straight, the the, the shortest distance between two points, unless you're on a sphere, is a straight line. And we ought to take the direct route whenever we can and take advantage of any potential movement with legislation. So thank you very much. That's, That's the end.
0: Now you'll hear from Kate Aronoff.
1: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm a millennial, so my notes are on a screen. Um, It's going to take just one second to set up. Um, I just want to give a huge shout-out to the folks who are working this event um, and who are volunteering, putting out coffee. Um, Like Stephanie said, it's not easy. So... um, Thank you all. and for everyone who's here. this is an incredible event, and uh, as someone who's been writing about this stuff and following it for a long time, I would never have predicted 1,400 people would be in a room to talk about the Green New Deal in, 20, uh, in 2019 in 2018. Uh, so this is incredible. So some of you might know this image. I've never figured out what POGO is supposed to be, um, but uh, I have looked a lot at this particular strip and kind of variations on it. Um, so this is a cartoon produced in 1971, and uh, our titular character, Pogo, is staring out into this field of strewn litter and garbage and uh, you know, cars and all these things. Um, and he says, "We have met the enemy, and he is us." Um, this is not. An uncommon way that we talk about climate change. It's not an uncommon way that we talk about environmental issues, um, or many other things, right? Uh, And it's not uh, hard to feel pessimistic. Uh, We, you know, have yet to have comprehensive climate policy. In the United States, world leaders have a meeting since before I was born as part of the UNFCCC process um, to try and figure out a solution to this crisis, and what we got in 2015, finally, was an agreement that would leave us, uh, if you know, it, we take it at its word, would leave us overshooting three degrees Celsius, which is far beyond uh, the bounds that um, that most people have deemed acceptable and that you know is written into the Paris agreement which which seeks to get us to well below two degrees um, Celsius so you know it's not it's not hard to, to feel that there's maybe just something hardwired about humanity there's something we just can't uh, can't process about this problem. Um, most recently, the novelist Jonathan Franzen, uh, last weekend in the New Yorker, laid this out um, to a T. Um, you know, he's, he he describes sort of at length his own climate model, which is to say Jonathan Franzen thinking very hard about climate change in a room by himself. I can only I can only imagine. Um, and he writes, "Call me a pessimist or call me a humanist, but I don't see human nature fundamentally changing anytime soon." I can run 10,000 scenarios through my model, and in not one of them do I see the two degree target being met. Oh, damn. Um, he's not the only one to say this. Uh, in uh, something many of you might have seen uh, uh, issue wide uh, uh, issue of the New York Times Magazine, um, author Nathaniel Rich uh, writes that we have trained ourselves, whether culturally or evolutionary, to obsess. Over the present, we worry about the medium term and cast the long term out of our minds, as we might spit out a poison. More bad news, right? We just can't think about this problem in a way that's productive, um, which which is a huge bummer. Um, and you know, to the Jonathan Fransons and the, the younger riches of the world, I would ask, who is we, right? Who who are we actually talking about here? Um, So this is a study that was a graphic from a study produced by Oxfam um, in the lead-up to um, the Paris Climate Talks in 2015. Um, And what it finds is that the richest 10% of the world's population accounts for over 50% of its emissions, more than half. uh, While the poorest 50% account for just 10% of the world's emissions, the cruel, cruel inverse of what we have. One of the lesser sort of reported statistics from this study... Um, in sort of climate circles, is uh, found that, you know, billionaires between the Copenhagen talks in 2009 and the Paris talks in 2015 uh, increased uh, with billionaires' shares in fossil companies, expanded their fortunes by $100 billion. Uh, There are also incredibly stark uh, asymmetries between rich and poor countries uh, in this, and uh, the United States is the largest historical emitter of fossil fuels in world history. Um, I don't think averages are, are so, so helpful for thinking about things like climate change. Um, they can mask over the enormous inequalities within countries um, and within, you know, who who is consuming what, who is emitting what. Um, but I think there are some statistics that... that Uh, Some averages that bear repeating, Uh, the average U.S. resident emits more than double the greenhouse gases of someone living in China, and nearly 10 times as much as the average Indian. As several speakers have spoken to already, those who have received the fewest benefits of our fossil fuel economy who have not built either personal or national fortunes off of systems like slavery and colonialism are those already being hit hardest by its impacts in places like the Bahamas, in our own country, in places uh, like New Orleans, and and many, many others. Um, And within the US, a person's race remains the single biggest predictor of whether they live near pollution. but as far as carbon footprints go, nobody can really hold a candle um, to the leadership of the world's biggest polluters, the ExxonMobil's and shelves of the world. Um, just 90 companies have been responsible for an estimated two-thirds of emissions since the dawn of the industrial age. Uh, and accounting for his $145 million worth of shares in ExxonMobil circa 2015, uh, the researcher Dario Kenner in the UK found that Rex Tillerson, um, then CEO of that company, uh, was responsible for over 52,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide um, in in that year. Well over 3,200 times that of the average American. So there are people getting rich off of, let's be honest, killing people. Um, there are people getting rich off this crisis and the way that things are currently arranged. Um, and this often gets uh, sort of hidden. So. Uh, I won't you know, go too deep into all of these statistics, but um, pg and e for instance, was responsible for, found legally responsible for the deadliest wildfire in California's history. Uh, the campfire killed 86 people. Uh, its executives after that were awarded $11 million in bonuses, uh, a performance bonus um, for that time. Uh, right here in Philadelphia, uh, the executives of Philadelphia Ener- Energy Solutions, uh, who have been running an environmental justice calamity uh, in, southern- in South Philly, um, recently exploded, av- averting you know very narrowly a sort of full-blown catastrophe. Um, that plant shut down after that explosion. 280 workers were laid off, um, and the executives uh, got $4 million out of it. Um, so people have lost their livelihoods. People are getting rich. This is not, you know, you could pull any number of statistics from the last 10, 20, you know, 100 years um, that that will tell similar stories of this. Um, and just to, to talk briefly about the center statistic, um, a carbon tracker study recently found um, that fossil fuel companies, uh, all but one of those that were surveyed, um, reward executives for growing and growing and growing uh, their reserves um, indefinitely. And, uh, right, 92% uh, incentivize just continuing to dig up and find new reserves that we know we cannot burn. Um, And it's not just that they're doing this, right? It's not just that people are getting rich off of of the activities that are killing us. Um, It's that they have known for a very long time that that is exactly what they are doing. Um, As some incredible investigative journalism in the last several years has uh, pointed out, Uh, the folks at Inside Climate News, the LA Times, and others. Um, Exxon, um, as well as Shell, which was found out more recently, um, these companies have known for decades exactly how harmful um, their products are. This is Roger Cohen uh, of ExxonMobil, writing in 1981, um, expressing sort of the the hazards of their continuing to burn fossil fuels. Um, Fast forward to 1996, uh, and this is a a sort of Publication that they put out, um, casting doubt as they did for many, many years about whether this was a problem at all, about what was causing it, about who was causing it, um, and how you know how bad this really is, um, and going against everything that their own scientists had found. Uh, Naomi Oreskes and Jeffrey Sifrin at at Harvard um, have done probably the the most exhaustive study of exactly what that looked like. So uh, in a a survey of Exxon's um, internal and external communications about climate change from 1989 to 2004, about 80% of the company's internal understanding of the climate crisis was generally on the mark, generally understood, you know, what is going on, how bad it is. 81% 81% of their advertorials, of the things that they were putting into the New York Times with the blessing of the New York Times, uh, you know, business departments, what have you, um, were casting doubt on the science in some way, shape, or form. So I don't say all this just to say that fossil fuel executives are the scum of the earth, which they absolutely are. Um, (Laughter) It's also to say that these companies obscuring who is responsible for getting us into this mess is every bit as damaging as they're spreading denial about whether the problem exists at all. Um, That making this problem seem more confusing, more widespread, that this is an issue of collective sacrifice, um, that is the fight we're up against now, and um, I think we need to name enemies in that fight. Um, Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, After the 2008 financial crisis, right, people like Jamie Dimon, people like Lloyd Blankfein, they became sort of household names. They caused this massive crisis that was causing so many people so much pain. Um, And in the midst of the greatest existential crisis humanity has ever known, people like Exxon CEO Darren Woods, Shell CEO Ben Van Buren, remain relatively unknown. And why is that? Why can't we name um, the people who are responsible for this problem? Um, or you know, even just take the, the minute step of stopping them from getting into places like the UNFCCC talks where they will brag about their ability to write uh, climate, uh, climate legislation and climate agreements um, as they have the Paris Agreement. So you know, this is not a problem of human nature. This is not, I you know, hate to break it to Jonathan Franzen, um, something that we just can't can't take on. Um, you know we have an enemy, and it's very small in numbers and I, I would argue is what you know Bernie Sanders not so affectionately refers to as millionaires and the billionaires and we know right that These companies that have spent decades spreading disinformation about this crisis, um, who have misled the public um, despite knowing uh, exactly what was going on, uh, they will throw everything they have at policies a fraction as ambitious as a Green New Deal. Take a company like BP, which uh, in the last several years has become publicly supportive of a carbon tax, a global carbon tax. Um, Last year in Washington state, they spent 13 million dollars um, to kill a very modest uh, carbon tax there, um, and so why, you know, why would they do that? Um, they can be fully expected to do everything uh, to, to throw everything they have at the problem, um, and I think that means that we should name them, name them head on, um, and it's also part and parcel of building the movement that we need to actually take this, this crisis on at the, at the scale it demands, right? Uh, we are never going to compete with ExxonMobil or Shell or any of these companies for the amount of money they have the amount of money they can pour into polluting our political process. Um, what we do have is people right? Uh, and there, we have more people than them. There are not that many fossil fuel executives in the world. Um, and as we build the sort of positive case for a Green New Deal, as we you know lay out in sort of incredible vision um, what uh, all this can do to make people's lives so much better. Um, It also means we need to take the fight right to the doors of the people who are are causing it. Um, Because as we know, the New Deal did not happen uh, because FDR had all the right details worked out in March of 1933. It happened in no small part because there was strike after strike after strike after strike that threatened to shut down business as usual in one of the world's largest economies. Um, And in order to do that, we need an enemy. I also want to run, run through these kind of quickly. Um, this is an illustration from Dario Um There are also very practical reasons why we need to end the business model of these companies. Um, as the folks who've been living with uh, leaky infrastructure and pipes and refineries in their backyards um, for decades and decades have rightly pointed out, we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground um, in a systematic way. Um, It's not going to be enough just to build out more renewable energy. It's not going to be enough just to invest in R&D. We need to do all of those things, absolutely. Um, But there is a reason why the share of our energy mix that is is filled by fossil fuels has not um, budged significantly in the last several years. Um, And it's because these industries have enormous, enormous power to keep things exactly as they are. Um, we know that the current reserves of uh, coal, oil, and gas companies are more than enough to shoot us well beyond the 1.5 degree uh, degree target um, that groups in the Global South have been calling for for years and years and years as crucial to survival. Um, and, you know, even if all of that is burned, uh, it will take us right up to 2 degrees Celsius. Um, this has to stop. Uh, and just, yeah, there's, you know, there's many of, many of these. Um, just in the last year, in 2018, this is a, a brief list of all of the projects that have been sanctioned. A um, study came out just this past week from Carbon Tracker um, of all of the, the projects that would, you know, are clearly out of line with the Paris Agreement um, being done by fossil fuel companies, uh, approved by fossil fuel companies uh, that uh, are, you know, on the one hand, uh, sponsoring things like the post-debate talk uh, in CNN last night uh, was sponsored by BP. Um, and here is their you know, $1.3 billion deepwater uh, deep drilling facility. So we know what happens if, if the business model of the fossil fuel industry is allowed to continue unabated. Um, we get to climate chaos. That much is clear. Um, They might also uh, wise up at some point. They might also potentially figure out that this crisis will, at some point, affect them. Um, And We also know what that looks like from the last several years in the coal industry. It means uh, executives will get uh, their golden parachutes. It means that workers will get screwed over on their healthcare and their pensions uh, and uh, will be catastrophic for basically everyone who has not been involved in the fossil fuel industry. there is an alternative to that. We can affect a managed decline of the fossil fuel industry in a way that's orderly, that puts workers and communities that have been on their losing end first, uh, and is not so concerned about the future and the profits of these companies uh, in the way that climate policy has been um, has been to this point. So, you know, as we build support around all the ways that, that most ordinary working people would benefit from a Green New Deal, um, it only makes sense, I would argue, to combine that with a populist project um, that names and shames the people still driving this crisis, uh, and you know are continuing to say they care about the climate crisis while continuing to invest in the projects that are killing us. Yeah. Um, and this helps build the coalition that will make it possible to get what we need. Um, just to reiterate, and you know, as people see that their lives and communities are improving through the projects as part of a Green New Deal, um, you know that creates a sort of virtuous cycle by which we can really have uh, serious carrots for this this transition and serious sticks. So we can have things like stringent regulations and real consequences when utility executives fail to meet renewable portfolio standards, a credible threat to bring fossil fuel companies under public ownership and an act of managed decline, making fossil fuel companies subject to the kind of RICO suits that were brought against the tobacco industry not so recently for misleading the public about their harms, and maybe even trying fossil fuel executives for crimes against humanity, of which they are clearly, clearly guilty. So, just to wrap up, uh, what the Green New Deal does really brilliantly um, is reframes this uh, away from being an issue of collective sacrifice, that we all need to give up our our plastic straws, buy organic, and that will solve the problem, um, and makes this a conversation about public investment. But it's reasonable, right, for people to have some sense that something needs to change. And if we don't name a clear enemy, it's only reasonable that a number of people will either turn off entirely or default to what 40 years of neoliberal capture has told us the problem is ourselves. That's a bad understanding of the problem. It makes the politics of taking it on so much harder than it needs to be. To put it bluntly, it's what capitalists do best, divide working people against themselves to keep the focus off of them. So let's name who's driving this crisis so we can build the movement we need to deal with it.
0: Now you'll hear from Peggy Deemer.
5: I think, like all of us speakers, I'm uh, totally thrilled to be invited to be here. Um, it's an amazing lineup. it's an amazing group of people, it's an amazing conversation, so I'm so thankful. I'm thankful to the organizers, I'm thankful to Kate and to Billy and to Daniel. I'm also thankful to the Architecture Lobby for inviting me to be the one who speaks um, uh, for and about them and, and with them today, so um, it's an honor. Architecture is stunning in its happy acceptance of having no political power, minimal spatial opportunities, no pay, and little social relevance. (laughs) The only other equally stunning fact is architects' numbness to climate change and our dismissal of environmentalism from our inner circle. The Green New Deal has offered the architecture lobby the opportunity to probe these two ideological voids Together. While many of us architects on the left have recognized the problems that a society of the 1% has handed us, the Green New Deal has forced us productively to think systemically about how, how capitalism works. So um, I'm lamenting here and apologizing for architectures being missing in action in these forms. The causes allowing climate change and its social nexus to be absent from our discourse are too numerous to go into here, but they broadly fit into these categories. One, it's exceptionalism, which is to say, we think we operate above society, handing down our aesthetic gifts to it. (laughs) Two, it's liberalism, which is to say, we assume that our progressive aesthetic values shaping the sensitive gifts that we give society. And the fact that we vote for Democrats demands no further investigation or actions. (laughs) And it's purism, which is to say, we believe that we hold on to our discipline, if we hold on to our disciplinary autonomy, we, unsullied by politics and unsullied by capitalism, offer an Adorno-esque aesthetic and ideological haven. In Foucault's statement, it is not just that we are not masters of his three important domains. We suffer from the master mystique altogether, which is a fundamental problem. Bringing architecture into presence, and I hope to the present, this is my talk. The architecture lobby will soon offer its Green New Deal statement, and the statement is available for you outside but here I want to delineate the confluence of strategies necessary for architectural power, the confluence of that with those elaborated by the Green New Deal. We are learning from the Green New Deal at the same time that we want to argue for our essential and structural place in it. The three territories where architecture, like the Green New Deal, must must structure power are labor, production, and consumption. Labor. There are two aspects of labor. One is unionization. We in the architectural lobby believe that an empowered profession depends on unionizing architects. And we have a motivating wow. example. The Federation of Architects, Engineers, Chemists, and Technicians was formed by architects during the New Deal in 1933 and gained membership throughout World War II. Members included Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and Robert Oppenheimer. It was started in anger and defiance over the American Institute of Architects' response to the National Industrial Recovery Act's request for professionals in the construction industry to identify an appropriate minimum wage. The AIA, in discussion with the government, recommended a flat wage of 50 cents per hour, which was only 10 cents above the amount suggested by the government for all workers. The FAECT Union went to Washington DC and succeeded in their demand for higher wages. But as important as its fight Um, was its subsequent fight for the social issues ignored by the government, the lack of affordable housing, the misuse of technology, the expensive education that made education virtually impossible, and the acquiescence to Robert Moses' physical and social engineering in the New York area. FACET is not merely then a reactive but a proactive model for unionization, and it's one that the architecture lobby wants to emulate. We also think that architecture is not one amongst many industries that should unionize, but a particularly symbolic one, the intersection of white collar professionals and creatives, the intersection of white collar and design, two areas particularly resistant to labor. We can prove the value of speaking as a class, and when we speak as a class, we can take on, along with other unions, the private developers that are currently determining what and how we build. Organization. Um, All um, on-the-ground architectural workers need to be organized, even if this, in a discipline that has always been fundamentally gigish, is like herding cats. It isn't primarily an us, workers, versus them, owners. It's more that only the workers seem capable of transcending the problematic liberalism of our aesthetic proclivity that most firm owners um, operate in and understand the larger struggle of what it means to be on the ground, to do design, and operate effectively. The corollary to this is radical democracy, which I think pushes in the other direction, and it's a tension between organization and radical democracy that I'm particularly interested in, Um, which is to say we need to be open to the dispersal of the cats. We need to be open to our perpetual and productive disagreements. This is not about forcing consensus. It's about continuing an essential debate. Um, In some way, this is an indication that we cannot let our ideological differences divide us and divert our attention from the larger goals of a just society and a healthy planet. We also need to be attentive to the different subjectivities that live under the architectural umbrella, gender, race, expertise, age, security, etc. The Green New Deal emphasizes this, But the work of Just Just Transition needs to be commended in particular for pushing this idea that everyone who is going to be affected by a carbon-free society should participate in its construction. So, two production that has two categories in it, which is procurement and performance. Uh, Procurement, here... um, Clearly, the architectural engineering construction industry needs to produce the built environment differently. Architects must collaborate with the constructors, with the engineers, with the ecologists, and utilize advanced informational technology to monitor, coordinate, and organize the better processes of delivering a building and delivering it differently. Factory-built, ecologically sourced, labor-oriented, transport smart. At the same time, we need to also defy the demands of technology and push against a techno-utopia of automation. We need to focus on employment, and we need to focus on the contribution, and yes, this is aesthetic, the machines don't make. Ah, okay, let me just, okay, performance. We must take the long view of our architectural acts, i.e., we shouldn't judge or award work until we know how it performs ecologically, financially, and socially. Tally, an app designed by Karen Timberlake, and I think many of the um, firm's people are here, it's a firm here in Philadelphia, allows architects, engineers, and contractors to examine and compare the embodied energy of different building materials while it is being designed as opposed to after the fact. Karen Timberlake is also developing mechanisms to evaluate post-occupancy to verify building performance against design model productions, which is to say way upstream and way downstream. We need to collect that data and know the information. But architects also need to take the larger view and ask who actually gains and loses in a given project. The stakeholders in the end are not only, or even primarily, the developer or the owner, or even the user. It is the larger public who participates in the neighborhoods that our work creates. But I want to say also that the real issue here is producing, long, for producing long-term sustainable projects is having an enlightened architect at the decision-making table right at the start. As long as we are merely decorating programs handed to us by private developers, our contributions are wasted. So um, third, um, final uh, group here, consumption. Um, We need to produce uh, things that aren't objects of capitalist consumption. As Kate Arnoff in her Green New Deal work has indicated in many of her posts, conspicuous consumption goes hand in hand with conspicuous production. Progressive technology and its linear model of progress dives the making of more and more unnecessary things. And there are two indices of these, scaling up and scaling down for architects. Scaling up. We need to think beyond the architectural object and address infrastructure. This does not primarily mean our highways and our bridges, which are geared towards cars, which will soon be extinct, but but those particular needs that uh, that address the forthcoming crisis, including and especially housing. We need to consider the neighborhoods and the open spaces that infrastructures define and often destroy, and we need to do this in collaboration with other relevant disciplines, especially landscape architects and planners. But we also must address social infrastructure if we want to create the commons which means it call, calling for empowering neighborhoods at all territorial levels. This is a social and an economic issue, but it is also a political issue. The example here is a work by, by um, Killian Riano uh, for work done for analyzing and making visual what, is, what the neighborhood actually needs in, in the Corona Park area. Scaling down, retrofitting. Scaling down, on the other hand, asks architects means that architects need to ask this question. What is the least that we can do and still exuberantly achieve or exceed the expectations of our discipline? Retrofitting. This means concentrating on retrofitting existing buildings. The Green New Deal emphasizes this. But the areas that are singularly pro-development, like New York City, Um, in those cities, architects need to rally around plans similar to de Blasio's 80 times 50 plan, which puts enormous emphasis and throws a lot of money at retrofitting buildings. But we also want to recognize that retrofitting goes beyond producing more energy-efficient buildings. It needs to also include socially responsive ones, and this project by Lacaton and Vassal in Bordeaux, France, Um, in in which the um, addition of the porous was not merely an ecological issue because it actually did um, help the energy exchange between indoors and outdoors, um, nor was it merely a facelift, although that facelift mattered, but it also created new public and family spaces um, at the same time. But we also need to remember our most powerful act of all, which is refusal, the refusal to work on projects that are unethical, and destroy our planet. The architecture lobby has been um, uh, uh, active in in promoting various refusals, um, the refusals for any architects or engineering firms to in any way participate in the construction of the southern border walls, in any way participate in the construction or redesign or rethinking of the detention centers, of refusing to do work in those countries that use indentured um, slave for the construction of those projects, and and that's in collaboration with the group Who Builds Your Architecture. Um, So, and I have to say, I was recently called by somebody asking um, whether uh, architects were taking a stand about not building in Saudi Arabia. I have not heard anybody talking about that, but it is is exactly the kind of refusal that we need to be arguing for. So finally, just conclusion, um, to talk about architecture and resilience. Uh, resilience in our discourse is a catchword for what architects and landscape architects can and should design, which is how do you actually make an infrastructure and, and a, um, a, a certain territory um, be able to... Um, uh, include and change with our, with our changing um, sea level rise and climate change. But for me, the singular attraction of the Green New Deal is, is its systemic thinking, which focuses on the connectivity and adaptability that is the backbone of resilience. I look at these charts, marks on the economy, thinkers of ecology and relationships to society, think about systemic thinking... Um, Architecture must embrace this connection with and embeddedness in a larger political, economic, social, and environmental context. This implies not just collaborating with the large network of actors shaping the built environment, but being patient and witnessing the structure of the feedback loops it participates in. Architects can lament the short-term profit interests of developers, but we ourselves need to take a long view to assess the repercussions of our very acts I know this goes against what Stephanie was saying, that straight line, don't overthink it, but I actually think the architects in general um, don't understand the larger um, operations that that, um, begin before the need to happen um, and and the follow-up that occurs to really allow a Green New Deal and a built environment to occur. At the same time, while I have been ragging on our field and emphasizing that the notion of architects as masters is the root of our problematic marginalization, I want to suggest that a re-empowered discipline, whose mission is no longer get a job at all costs or beautify the desires of the 1%, positions us to be effective players in the Green New Deal. As actors who are literally working on the ground, in the earth, on the lot, with the foundations, on the streets, in the networks of energy distribution, With the builders, the developers, the owners, the users, in the neighborhoods, we can coordinate, not lead or master, the needs and desires of a huge segment of society. In this, we learn from and can contribute to the Green New Deal.
0: Next up is Kate Orff.
6: Okay. Thanks, I'm excited to be here too. Um, If Stephanie talked about paying for a Green New Deal, I'm gonna talk about workshopping the Green New Deal. And this is a direct kind of challenge to uh, particularly the design students in this room um, because I feel like the Green New Deal needs to signify a total shift in the mindset and approach of the designer as we know it. I'm interested in the idea of the workshop as this kind of convening power, as a way of bringing people together, the power of design to test, iterate, um, advance, and sharpen ideas working in the public sphere. We need to move from the napkin sketch, or the master designer, to a visual note-taker, facilitator in the public realm, and I think that is an entirely exciting new way to operate. It's also the designer's job to translate policy into physical expression on the ground. We need to visualize and give form to this exciting new low-carbon landscape, the ways that we can imagine a less fragmented territory and people living more closely together and having more time to spend with each other. So when I hear Rihanna talk, I loved this last panel. I just think, I wanna know, how can we help? I mean, literally. Designers often come to situations we do not listen. I'm very interested in just simply asking, how can we help? What do you need? And what I'd really like us to focus on is how the physical constraints of projects. I am very applied designer. I work in the real world on projects around the United States and I'm excited about how the specificity of plans, sections, materials can help accelerate change and tie together social justice and new forms of infrastructure. So how can we kind of more quickly develop a more reciprocal um, relationship between projects and policies and vice versa? So the goal is to design to influence policy let's convene uh, lawyers I can't believe I'm saying that policymakers and designers to link scales of governance to catalytic projects. Um, we are a nation of well I think laws, federal, state and local laws so the answer is not just for designers to be political, yes, we need to vote, we need to get out there, but is to design in a political context and in this new uh, world of, of sort of legal and context. So, some quick examples. First, the city scale. I'm from New York City, let's talk about local and local laws because, shockingly, um, it is, uh, I think, local laws that will um, help Sort of, um, that may kind of block some of these larger energy transitions that we need to consider. Anyone recognize this drawing? Yes, it is Central Park, Olmsted's greensward plan for Central Park in the late 1800s. So this uh, is considered one of um, our greatest democratic spaces, one of the greatest democratic spaces in the world. But importantly, this is this kind of synthetic, you know, green carpet, a sort of a vision of a before and after. Um, But the debate around Central Park, who could use the park, could women ride bicycles in the park, could women be alone in the park, actually helped to shape our democratic tradition. And, um, and it raised questions about the nature of public, who gets to be included in that phrasing. And on a bad note, during its construction, an entire town of free African Americans and Irish immigrants were forcibly removed to make way for Olmsted's vision of this synthetic idol. But at the same time, this vast space um, shifted cultural perceptions of gender and power relations. Here's an image of a 1912 gym class. And only about five years later, New York State granted women suffrage. I can only imagine the sort of power of this vast public space um, to help advance some of these debates. The park also changed ideas about our ideas of nature and wildlife. This gentleman with his head in a caged hippo's mouth is experiencing something very different from Jonathan Franzen looking at wild birds in the ramble with his binoculars and camera. (laughs) Next, the state level. Dr. Vox, or uh, not a doctor, but mentioned the power of the state. (laughs) Mentioned the power of the state, and I totally agree that the state is a powerful political and spatial frame for change. At the state level, we can uh, begin to uh, move the ball forward. So in New York, I have an example of a project which is um, now by the scape office, my office scape, and also the governor's office of storm recovery. So this is a project called Living Breakwaters, and it tries to push the regulatory and policy changes at multiple levels, but also to inspire. I think that's what we need to do all around. The project um, is a string of breakwaters seeded with oysters. It reduces risk, rebuilds structural habitat and ecosystems, and it brings educators to the shoreline, hoping to kind of set into motion a new regenerative cycle. We know what it looks like when the world is falling apart. I think Kate described that very clearly. What is very difficult to describe is how we begin to stitch People natural systems back together, the project aims to catalyze a change process, not a, not be a synthetic master plan, but a concept for stitching environment and people together. It is about relations between things. It exists on the ground in plan and section, and we 're changing a range of different regulations um, as it gets built. It emerged from a workshopping process which was an, kind of an open ended um, convening of multiple stakeholders from multiple different perspectives. It moved from a regional scale down to a pilot project. So a couple notes now on the skills. What kind of skills do designers need to bring to the Green New Deal? Number one, first of all, we need to bring uh, become more political but also begin to speak the language of regulators and agencies. We need to make drawings that communicate the physical extents of these potentially catalytic projects and clearly articulate their co-benefits. We need models. We need to not think about models as some um, idealization of a final uh, uh, condition, but models that show context and um, show, in this case, residence time with the breakwaters. We need skills and we, get into, we need to design projects as pilots, as experiments that could be referenced, modified, changed in the future. We need skills of listening. We need to be able to interact in that elementary school basement or cafeteria in that school auditorium. We need to understand the legal processes that are behind uh, these uh, uh, um, transformational projects, and we need to understand where they happen. We need patience and grit. This fast-track $60 million project, which is a tiny sliver of a tiny sliver of a post-Sandy um, CDBG DR uh, tranche, um, is, has six binders <laughs> of just an environmental impact statement over multiple years. Bureaucracy will frustrate the most passionate and diligent designers among us. We need skills of the non and non-traditional forms of engagement, things and activities that are educative and fun. We need to meet people where they are. So this project is um, in water and in construction and start next year. I'm excited for it to sort of test the social and physical and policy world that um, it was designed designed to um, uh, elicit. Okay, the elephant in the room, the national scale. The national scale which I think is probably the most critical, the most frustrating as witness to the filibuster tearing our hair out, thinking about that concept. It's out of reach due to the Senate and, of course, the makeup of the Electoral College. I tried to describe, um, in this book, Petrochemical America, with the photographer Richard Misrach, at a national scale, develop a portrait of a landscape of extraction, waste, displacement, and environmental injustice. So through Richard's photographs and a series of drawings that you can see here, like the one on the top that shows atrazine and nitrogen despoiling and creating a dead zone in the Gulf, um, I began to start to chart and map um, at a national scale um, the impacts of these extractive landscapes on people's real lives in their neighborhoods. So Why don't we try to workshop a Green New Deal? I'm thinking, Billy, about what we wake up and do tomorrow morning. So let's get to work. Could one outcome of this conference be a workshop for the Green New Deal, where we could kind of co-create design and it not happen in a vacuum, but around a table with a very diverse group of policymakers, community members, et cetera? Let's do it. (laughs) How can design influence policy at a national scale? So I'm going to show a bunch of crazy images, and I'd like you all to think about how we can do that. What kinds of projects could inspire new, kind of much more casual coalitions of self-interest and begin to um, bring together states or watersheds? Could we think of a Mississippi River National Park based on a concept and an ideology of living with water? Could we get Iowa hog farmers together with Louisiana shrimpers? Could this spark a new legacy of, wait for it, the Green New Army Corps of Engineers? Yes, please. I hope so. So... Inspired by the California Coastal Act, could we imagine an interconnected shoreway combining equitable, managed retreat, investing in living shorelines, stemming the collapse of marine life and coastal biodiversity? Could we imagine a green new Coast Guard? Yes. Yes, we can. Could we think about the Great Lakes as this kind of shared freshwater resource and think about a green new EPA? We must. Could we think about how we could foster and design regenerative agriculture practices and policies? And could designers help articulate what this means on the ground and what the public health and ecosystem benefits could be? We need a green new USDA. Yes. (laughs) We wish. (laughs) But we're going to try. So, could we begin to link brownfields and new green renewable energy Um, and not um, uh, sort of jump over and be mindful of the legacy of environmental racism that is part of our extractive oil and gas economy? And can we push back on local law? Let's imagine a green new Department of Energy. How can we combine living forests initiatives and the need for habitat corridors for literally our animal friends and, and climate refugees in the animal world? We need a green new forest service. And how can low-carbon housing, which I hope Daniel will talk about soon, be better tied to transportation investments? Yes, we need a green new HUD. We absolutely do. So more importantly, how can this new American landscape that embodies or helps precipitate a just transition not be thought of or as designers as a synthetic, totalizing idol, but be looser, more open, ironic, leaky, partial, and non-extractive, and that sort of gives back to the environment, thinking more of like a crazy quilt, like you see here. So the challenge is to think about all of these things together now, how they overlap in physical space and in their larger social and political context. Um, our ple- this sort of pledge for justice for all will not be easy, and we'll all have to work together. So I will close with a couple of images um, here of the Civilian Conservation Corps and here with our uh, partners in the Living Breakwaters Project at the New York Harbor School. Because in the next 50 years, as we workshop and implement Green New Deal policies, a new generation, mindful of past errors, looking for a future urban landscape that is more just and more fun, uh, is, uh, is right around the corner. So to close, I'd like you to think about a couple of things. One is think about the idea of the workshop as a method for productive next steps, that designers can play a really positive uh, role uh, with our policymaking compatriots. We need to think about how to design and inspire to foster policy changes. We need to think about those six binders um, and understand that high school cafeterias, um, auditoriums, these are the places where... Um, as we design and we think about taking pen to paper, these are the places where this uh, climate fight will unfold. Thank you.
0: And last, you'll hear from Varshini Prakash.
7: Hi, everybody. How's it going? OK, um, I feel like I need this, so I'm going to make all of you do it with me. Can everybody just stand up, please? That was awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Hi, my name is Varshini. I am learning so much at this conference. Like, wow, design. This is fantastic. Um, I'm with Sunrise Movement, and if, uh, are there any sunrisers in the house? All right. There you are. There you are. Sick. Okay, so you can help me. We do this everywhere, and um, I'm going to ask you all to sing a quick song with me. It's easy, it's just call and response, so you don't have to think too much about it. Um, And it goes a little something like this, and I'd love for you all to help me with it if you have heard it before. All right. Forget your perfect offerings, just ring the bells that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. Forget your perfect offerings. Just ring the bells that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. All right, one time, like you mean it, like let's shake it out a little bit while we do it. All right? Okay. Forget your perfect offerings. Just ring the bells that still can ring. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. All right. Thank you for that. Wow. Oh, man, y'all are counting that towards my time. I'm screwed. Okay. Um, thank you so much for that. If singing isn't your you know, most comfortable place, I appreciate you engaging in that social experiment with me. Um, my name is Varsani. I am one of the co-founders of Sunrise Movement. I am thrilled to be with you here today. If you don't know what Sunrise is, we are building an army of young people to stop the climate crisis and create millions of good jobs for our generation in the process. Um, and I, yeah, yeah, that's what we're here to do. Um, so we are. So a little bit about me. I came from. I, I came here today from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, born and raised in in Massachusetts. And um, when I was like, in my teenage years, I really caught the bug of social movements. And I think why I caught the bug was largely because um, I had been like tinkering around with light bulbs and plastic bags for a little while. And it was just really amazing to be a part of something that felt like it wasn't just about changing our light bulbs, but it was about changing our politics. And that we were a part of a movement where we could join together with thousands of people and be far more powerful than any of us could be on our own. And that for the first time in my life, I didn't have to feel like I was in isolation dealing with problems that were so huge and so immense that they kept me up at night as like a 15-year-old, right? So, I was really active in a bunch of campaigns when I was younger. I was working on fossil fuel divestment, as you mentioned. Um, Oh, wow, great. Got some divestment, folks. That's great. Um, You know, started talking to a whole bunch of people um, in the youth climate sphere as well, people who were in Paris when the Paris Agreement was signed, folks who were working to stop the Keystone XL pipeline on state legislative fights and and more. Um, And there was this period of time we were mostly politicized, largely during the Obama era, and we were like, okay, this is exciting. We are seeing a burgeoning climate movement in the United States. We are seeing some of the first glimpses of federal climate policy. Um, there's just this like uh, renewed momentum around this issue. But at the same time, we were also seeing IPCC report UN climate report after another coming telling us that we had to make unprecedented changes to our society that we were ill-prepared for. We were seeing uh, anecdotally just like storms worsening, droughts worsening, famine spreading, increased climate migration, all of these terrible things. And we realized the existing movement that we had was not enough. So in the summer of 2016, we actually gathered about 12 young people from across the climate movement to discuss what would it mean to build a new movement in this country for climate justice. And during this time, we wanted to build a movement that could actually go to scale, that could engage not just thousands or tens of thousands, but potentially millions of people in the fight to stop the climate crisis. We wanted a movement that was actually proactively fighting, not just reactively defending and being responsive to the political circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because I can tell you, if we are constantly and always playing defense, we are constantly and always losing. Um, And so we also wanted to build a movement that was by and for young people. And if you're a young person growing up in this country right now, if you're anything like me, like, I spent my college years imagining with my friends what the kind of bunker we would ne- need to create to, like, you know, shield ourselves from the, like, our militarized band of, like, bandits that were out in, because the government had just collapsed and all of society was in ruin, right? Like, that was, like, my child, that was my, uh, that, those were my teenage years. Um, or, you know, kids who are literally, like, I don't know if it's ethical for me to have children in this moment. Um, And at the same time, we've also seen the role that young people have played again and again and again in social movements being the vanguard of social change in this country and that if we wanted transformational climate policy in America we weren't going to get it unless there was a really organized militant force of young people that was ready to make it happen. So with all of that in mind, um, we began this like, year-long process of, of trying to figure out what this social movement could look like. And we studied a bunch of stuff, the civil rights movement, anti-Vietnam War era movements, labor movements, so on and so forth. Um, and we thought about like, how do we actually solve some of these, how have movements in our past achieved the kind of transformational changes that we need to do to solve the climate crisis? And we studied things like the Occupy movement that had come and totally shifted the center of gravity for conversations about inequality in this country, and at the same time seemed super ill-prepared for their own success, right, and dissipated within months. So we were trying to solve this quandary of how do you sustain momentum and organizing, how do you build to scale, and how do you support people in every corner of this country to be able to organize in their own communities um, and in the context that they know the best. So if everything that we have learned today is true, to solve the climate crisis, we will need to create transformational socioeconomic mobilizations in this nation to get off of fossil fuels, to create tens of millions of good jobs, and to center racial and economic equity at the core of all of that. Getting to that point will require nothing less than building and maintaining governing power for a decade or longer. That's the level of power that we need. And so if all of that is true, we realize that when we launched in 2017, we came away with three core components of our theory of change. So the first component, and I want you all to say this with me, is people power. People power. All right, that did not sound like People power. People power. <laughs> Slightly better. Okay, so that's number one, people power. The second one is political power. Great, and the third one is realignment in American society. (laughs) That's kind of how it plays out in real life too, so that's fine, (laughs) great. So by people power, we mean a large vocal base of millions of people in this country. So There's some social science out there that says that if you are able to get to the sustained participation of 3.5% of a given population, you inevitably win on the issue that you are fighting for. So 3.5% of the American population is about 11 million people. That's a lot of people. That's nothing to scoff at. But we also have 100 million people in this country between the ages of 10 and 35. And the vast, vast majority of them all support action on, uh, support a Green New Deal and support action on addressing the issue of climate. So this is a huge benefit for us. The second thing that we need is political power. And this means a critical mass of enthusiastically supportive public officials. We are not going to win without this. I know a lot of people that I work with, and I know a lot of us were raised to be like, ugh, politics like icky, and not like it, and not feel like we're represented by it. And at the same time, like I will never forget that feeling of just utter rock bottom and pain and fear that I felt after the election in 2016 when a climate-denying GOP controlled both the House and the Senate and the presidency, and immediately, I saw people like Rex Tillerson being put up for Secretary of State, who's the former CEO of ExxonMobil, um, who would be in charge of, of potentially negotiating our climate treaties. So we need our people in office. And we don't just need people who say the slogan on the campaign trail or who just do whatever the, the vast majority of people are doing. We need fighters. We need vocal supporters of these policies to be in office who are accountable to us. And we can't do it without both the people power side of it and the political power side of it. Anyone remember what the last one is? Real, nice, okay. Realignment in American politics, awesome. Um, Okay, so I guess before I get into what realignment is, I want to talk a little bit about what political alignments are. And you can kind of think of a political alignment as a collection of social, um, political, and economic organizations and movements that are loosely aligned, broadly aligned, around a common set of values and a shared agenda for society. And if that political alignment wins both public support and political power, so people power and political power, sort of, they that set of values and that shared agenda for society becomes dominant, and that alignment becomes dominant. And in American history, we have had two major alignments in our past, in the past about 80 to 100 years of US politics. Um, the first one is the New Deal alignment that started in the 1930s-ish and lasted until about the 1970s. And we've been talking about the New Deal a lot today, so I don't need to rehash that. But this was kind of a um, moment in US politics where um, there was a set of values that having an active government that actually helped working people in this country was beneficial to our goals and to helping working people. And during this time, we saw incredible policy-making take place, right? Like we saw over 60 programs enhanced or newly created under FDR during the span of just about a decade. That's unbelievable. Like, when I hear that, I'm like, what? I can literally never, like, even imagine that because all I've had in the last 10 years is, like, the ACA. And that's my only understanding of of policymaking. It's it's incredible. Um, And you have all of these values, like FDR's second Bill of Rights, that every person should be guaranteed a home, uh, uh, medical care, should be guaranteed um, a job, should be guaranteed an education. Um, These were all values that were broadly espoused and didn't include necessarily everyone as we've talked about as well. Um, And then we have in the 1970s beyond, we see the Reagan alignment and you see a complete flip of the view of government and the values that govern American society. Does anybody remember what what Reagan's uh, nine scary, nine, yeah, 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 thank you, nine most dangerous words are? Nice, nice, nice. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So we have this move from this active Government that's helping, that's trying to help working people, to this complete transformation. To uh, government is the problem, and if government is the problem, then we should rely on the markets. And we see this um, value system around individualism, around pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that takes place. That the public sector is the problem, and we see a massive disinvestment in the public sector. We see uh, the, the budgets for the for uh, the military budgets increase exponentially. We see the prison population increase exponentially. We see income inequality increase exponentially over the 30, 40 years of that time period. And we also see massive rollback and deregulation of uh, environmental policies as well. So all of that is to say that I think we need a new alignment in American politics. We need a, an alignment, a political alignment that is comprised of thousands of organizations, movements, um, think tanks, unions, and beyond that are collectively organized around a broad set of values that all people deserve to live dignified, peaceful lives, where all people can drink fresh water and breathe clean air and have access to a job and a, and a safe home and a livable future. And we have to make that ideology and that value system dominant again, and it has to permeate every single way that we think about our politics. Um, So that's Sunrise's theory of change, in a nutshell. Um, (laughs) And we're working on it. (laughs) We need your help. (laughs) Um, So to say just briefly about Sunrise's organizing, um, we... We really see in our organizing methodology, it broken up into a couple different components. Um, I think the way we can break that down is through moral protest and through grassroots organizing. So one component of our organizing that I think is probably the the piece that people see us the most for, because it's stuff that gets the most media attention, is the moral protest side. It's about escalated actions that usually involve some kind of political confrontation that support us in narrative shift that support us to actually bring this this crisis into urgency, into today, into now, into do something right away because we don't have another hour to waste. Um, And examples of that are like when 200 sunrisers sat in at Nancy Pelosi's office last fall on November 13th. Um, (laughs) That that will just be ingrained in my brain forever. Um, Or it includes... Uh, moments like when an eight-year-old girl confronted Senator Dianne Feinstein about supporting the Green New Deal. It's looked like that, but there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of moments like that that have happened all across this country that haven't brought people's attention quite as much. Um, And the second piece of this is grassroots organizing. So um, one way that we can get our issue into the public is through moral protest. The other way is the simple revolutionary thing of talking to as many goddamn people as possible and it sounds really simplistic when i say it but it's really really important and so sunrise folks are out every single day um, talking to people in their communities um, through our hundreds of chapters across the country um, they are working to elect Green New Deal champions up and down the ballot, and are talking to voters every single day on that. And I think one of the most revolutionary things that we can do is to have conversations with people who are outside the echo chambers of, of um, uh, who's already heard, and, and stop preaching to the choir, but actually go beyond. Um, so that's like a really that's that's been that's another part of our how we actually make that organizing methodology happen. Um, and really quickly, just. In closing, um, we are headed to, uh, we are currently in the place where we have seen transformational things that happen in U.S. politics, climate change actually being talked about as a political issue at all, that's amazing, Um, seeing this as a relevant issue going into the 2020 election, but we aren't anywhere close to actually achieving the goals that we set out. There is a long road ahead. We have an enemy that has already spent 2.65 million dollars in the last eight months, just lobbying against the non-binding Green New Deal resolution. Um, they are—they have built the infrastructure for the last 50, 40 years. They are organizing. They—they uh, they invest in ecosystems that all reinforce and support each other. They are building political power. They are—they are a well-oiled, well-funded machine. And that is a lot to be up against. That doesn't mean we go back and hide under our covers. That means we build the power to beat them. And so a lot of what we're gonna be doing over the next year and a half is one, making sure that we engage and elect Green New Deal champions, especially federally. But secondarily, or not secondarily, at the same time, we have been really inspired by the strikes that have been happening globally, led by people like Greta Thunberg, who is in America right now, came over on a boat. Um, and we have realized from learning from our labor friends and others that, and, and the civil rights movement, etc., that the only path to actually getting our politicians to move past this gridlock and, and do the things that we need to do to, to deal with the problem is Engage society in a level of mass disruption and social participation that we haven't seen in half a century or more So that looks like strikes it looks like worker stoppages It looks like getting tens of millions of people participating actively every single day of their lives that means um, stopping business as usual until we get what we want, and we're building towards that starting right now. So if you are a young person here, get involved. If you are young at heart, get involved. We need every single person involved to make this happen. It's not gonna be easy, but our lives are on the line. Thanks.
0: Now you'll hear a panel conversation moderated by myself, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, and Billy Fleming.
2: we on? we on?
0: Wow, thank you. I'm so pumped. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for a Green New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one thing I took away from this panel, don't want to put words in anybody's mouths, but one thing I took away is that radicalism and pragmatism are not opposing values. <laughs> a radical Green New Deal has to be pragmatic, any pragmatic Green New Deal will be radical.
7: Yeah. Um,
0: So a lot of you talked about different versions of kind of circular or reinforcing mechanisms, things that make other things possible. Mm. And it seems like we're we're in an emergency, like you said, uh, Varshini, we don't have an hour to lose. So if we think, not 2030, but next year, 2020, 2021, from the perspective of either, let's say, a policy or an organization or a social movement, what is a thing that we can do right away that helps to tackle um, inequality, build popular power, reduce carbon emissions? Like, what are some of those extremely short-term things we can do to get that ratchet going, start that positive feedback loop? Again, no excuses with 2030, but really short-term, something that sets this in motion and keeps strengthening that process.
5: Get workers organized.
0: <laughs> Sorry, the mic didn't quite put that up. You said to get workers organized?
5: I did say that. Yeah. Get workers organized.
2: <laughs> we, we can sit in uncomfortable silence for sit a little out. bit. We have oh, time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
7: I just talked a lot, so I was. Like... Oh, great. Okay. Well, in the next, uh, what day is it? It's Friday. So Friday the 13th. In the next week, exactly a week from today, the climate strikes are happening globally. How many folks are planning to participate in that? <gasps> Hell yeah. Okay, great. I hope we can double that number by next week because you heard about it today and now you know. Um, But it's going to be honestly fantastic. Like, there have been, we have been, you know, in conversations with teacher unions who are trying to figure out how they can support their students, like, talking to like eight and nine year- olds who are like I am striking because this is my future um, we need people to be turning out both on September 20th but also um, on no- in November we're gonna be combining another strike day with a massive voter registration effort to because that will be exactly one year out from the presidential election um, we're gonna do this again big time but like you know with a goal of like 20 or 30 million people on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, um, which will be April 22nd, uh, 2020. And um, I would say just get involved with organizations like Sunrise. Um, if if this if organizing isn't your uh, bread and butter, I would also say you know there are a number of organizations that are up here uh, that are around also um, that are great to get involved in. But like. We are organized. There are tons of young people here to organizing with Sunrise Movement, and we would love for you to be one of them. And there's no prerequisite except for wanting to save the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Stephanie, if I could push you, like in terms of spending, Mm. there's often the critique of the kind of argument you're making is oh, you know, we're not good at spending money, we're not good at spending money quickly, it gets Mm. wasted. I mean, What what are the first things that if you have a $16 trillion budget to help save humanity, what are the first things that you start spending money on? And how does that build the political power to then keep spending?
4: Well, look, I'm going to stay in my lane, and I think it's important. You know, I know what my strengths are, and I think the strengths of the people that we've heard from for the last six hours or something, (laughs) that's where the answer to that question needs to come from. I I mean, I can say that I would start with a federal job guarantee Mm -hmm. immediately because that has benefits not just not just ways to put millions and millions of people to work immediately doing climate-related activities, but there are broader benefits to that as well. And so I think that's where I start, but then in terms of the remaining 15 trillion plus, <laughs> um, that's for the experts in the in the fields.
0: Kate, I think you were going to say something before.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to speak, maybe, you know, relevant to that. I do think there are... The, as she mentioned, like the ecosystem, especially of think tanks, is just so sort of fully weighted to the right. Mm-hmm. I mean, like AEI, Heritage Foundation, um, you know, any number of others. They just have so much money available, um, and. As the previous panel mentioned, like our institutions are smaller, right, on the progressive left and the center left, um, but there's also a lot of people asking them wrong questions mm. about what mm-hmm. needs to happen. And so I think, in terms of you know getting to the place where we can have actionable policy in 2021, and sort of drawing on the expertise of folks who um, have worked in administrations, do know the sort of like administrative mechanisms by which this happens, which. Surprise! the left has been out of power for a very long time in the United States, and we don't have the, the sort of administrative expertise um, that many on the right do. Um, but really figuring out how do we triage like what expertise actually exists? Like the folks who, you know, May not be on board with everything, but are there are you know excited about supporting the Green New Deal or freaked out about the climate crisis for whatever reason. Um, but really, just doing a, a triage of what expertise exists and and sort of figuring out how to get that. Which I think you know, folks with New Consensus have been really good at you know getting that process started. And um, there's a lot of good work being done on this front. But I still think you know there is there are like people out there who have this knowledge and that all of those links are not mm-hmm. are not quite being made. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like, Kate, you're looking for lawyers to put Rex Tillerson in jail
7: projects.
2: <laughs> That's like the best case scenario for him, right, is going to do. I, I, I want to say, too, I think maybe step one in all of this is just making Stephanie the Treasury Secretary, and like that will solve a lot of things.
4: I was actually going to say, thank you. Uh, I, 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 um, um, we said personnel is policy, and there is an enormous amount that can be done through the heads of agencies. I mean, choosing what to enforce, right? I mean, there's an awful lot that can happen in spite of other sorts of points of resistance with the House and the Senate and what other things may happen. So um, in that first sort of 100 days scenario, I think an awful lot can happen with the right individual making the right appointments.
2: As we start looking towards that sort of like first hundred days, I still think it's important for us to like to recognize that the US thinks it's like really good at a lot of stuff. We think we think we're like really exceptional at everything and we're really like bad at most things, especially climate policy and especially climate justice. And so I I think, like, looking at the various fields you're coming from, from macroeconomics and finance, from organizing, from design, from writing and understanding, like, the culture of places, like, where are the other places in the world we should be looking to and ramping up what we're doing here to kind of get ready for January 21st,
5: 2021? (laughs)
2: Kate? I feel like Daniel just wants to say Vienna. Like, he can say it if he (laughs)
5: wants. Red Vienna? (laughs)
2: I mean,
0: (laughs) okay, I'll say something about Vienna. Sure, here we are. Um, Vienna is a beautiful place. In Vienna, the left has not lost an election since 1919. They were defeated in a civil war by proto-Nazis in the 1930s. The entire built environment of Vienna has been shaped by the working class movement through the um, Social Democratic Party, through labor unions, through the feminist movement, through the public health movement. And in the 1920s, in Red Vienna, the decision was made that this country has a lot of problems, the city has a lot of problems, the landlords are going to eat it, and we're going to build housing for about 10% of the workers in Vienna. In 10 years, they did this. They built beautiful housing. They built housing beautifully partly because there were a lot of uh, craftsmen who needed work. And they were put to work making this stuff beautiful because of the influence of the feminist movement, There were care facilities built in every single one of these units of social housing, beautiful gardens, dental clinics, um, school facilities, all of this kind of thing. And they built a a dream of urban life that lasted, survived the Second World War, although actually the public housing units were literally shelled by the Nazis in the 1930s. They knew where to go. Um, They called them the Red Fortresses, and Karl Marxhoff, the most spectacular of these units, literally shelled. The architect who the political architect of Red Vienna was murdered in Auschwitz afterwards. So this fight over housing was truly a fight of life versus death that defined the 20th century in this country. And at the end of all this, at the end of the war, when there were elections again and the left came in again, now in Vienna, one-third of housing is public. One-third is cooperative, one-third is market. People say, oh, if the working class were in charge of cities, it would just be boring gray concrete boxes. But it's the opposite. And then the last thing I'll say, in the 1930s, Brookings, our good friends in Washington, D.C., <laughs> fountain of PDFs, Brookings went to Vienna, and they said this was a waste of money. Hmm. It would have been cheaper to build concrete shacks in the suburbs, oh. put workers there, and use the income for something oh, else. God. So we know what the contrast of visions is. We know how intensely that battle was fought. It was a battle between an elite that wanted to divide workers against each other, and a workers' movement that built something very close to a kind of urban utopia. Uh, And I think that the politics of climate change are the exact same thing, and when I look to Vienna, I don't say, oh, I want that exact same garden, although there's an interesting echo in New York City of that. But I say I want that movement and that belief that what we're doing is not about just a pure utilitarian fight only to survive, but it is for a kind of communal splendor, public luxury. Mm -hmm. When you do, as in Vienna, tax, get 40% of your revenue from the top 5%, the properties and you put that to work for ordinary people, yeah, it's pretty great.
2: <laughs> I do want to ask Kate that question too, though, right? Because you're, you're running one of the most like interesting, if not the most interesting practices in the country. And I know you have a good handle on what not just is going on here, but like all around the world. Where are the places you look to when you're thinking about working on projects here where you're like, if only we could do it like... Vienna or Germany or wherever where, where are those places that you draw on mm-hmm.
6: in? well interesting and I wanted to, to go back to your 100 days question oh, yeah. too because for, for starters I think it's amazing Billy that you got this um, um, event here at Penn and I think that a, a big thing that I mean putting my educators hat on is that we could educate and think about that differently at mm-hmm. many levels and the idea of that we're competing for students why you know the idea of sort of Motivating around kind of the broader regional questions and have more alliances uh, between and among universities in a way that sort of marshals the intelligence mm-hmm. of the, this group towards some of these much more pressing questions, I think, is, is is definitely something I think we should do this year or next year. So I wanted to just put that out there. <laughs> Where to look is more difficult, I will not say Holland, (laughs) because uh, everybody in the water business understands that there's a large export um, um, uh, economy um, with the Dutch engineering expertise will not fall into that trap. I've been taking students to um, India for the past six years, and I will say that we have learned so much from kind of the way that the social life and social fabric, um, once sort of revolved around, um, I don't know if stewardship is the right word, but a kind of a gardening or a sort of a very much a localized care for their immediate environment. Many of those kind of, um, uh, ties have been uh, intentionally and forcibly cut, but when you see them working, I I would just say, I see this kind of like hyper-futuristic vision too about how people can come together at smaller neighborhood scales around um, um, resources and around things that they care
5: about. Peggy. Can, I, can I, 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 not the 100-day question, um, but the question of where one looks um, uh, around uh, professional <laughs> models uh, in, in architecture. One certainly looks to Sweden. Um, and Sweden is a place where, the, you know, the thing that corresponds to our AIA um, is one a union. And so there's not a difference between um, professional Trade organization and unionization—they're the same thing. But more than that, it's a—it's a union that's made up exclusively of the staff. It's not firm owners, and so they see that the—that the—that um, the workers are the, are the ones who actually. Um, deal with the problems and know how to bring those issues. But then, because of the strength of unions in in Sweden, the unions are part of the government, and so then there's also a direct link between that that professional organization and government policy, um, which is totally non-existent in in our country. This, it it's you know, we have no relationship <laughs> <in AI laughs> to government policy at all, um, except our bad ethics. Um, and, um, <laughs> Uh, so there's there's a lot there, and I'll say one of the things, and I I think I kind of promised the lobby that I wouldn't talk about this, but um, the um, one of the things they also have is they don't have a profession. They don't have a profession of architects, um, and so one of the, the consequences of of that, because everyone can a plumber can call themselves an architect, it means that the population then really cares about expertise and experience. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a certain investment in knowing what your background was, what it is your education, um, so the quality experience actually foregrounds as opposed to, I'm an architect, you must be expensive, you must make the building leak, you must not listen to me, which is kind of the <laughs> end of our conversation. Um, so anyway, that's a good model. That's great. <laughs> um,
0: one question I'd like, love to put to you, Varshini. So my... When Sunrise kind of arrived um, in a really big way, because um, it's been there for a little bit of time, but in a really big way, in the occupation of Nancy Pelosi's office, what really struck me was the messaging around jobs. Um, and that, you know, 350 has done incredible work. But one of the distinctive aspects of Sunrise was to come on and put jobs right there at the forefront of the message. Mm. And I'm curious does this have to do with your analysis of previous periods of alignment in American politics? Is it about a specific idea of building power with a certain set of labor allies. Like, mm. how did you decide what to pair with climate change as your kind of like top line message?
7: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of reasons. One is, um, one is that I think the, the way in which um, the jobs versus environment fight has been set up by largely by elites who tend to have no skin in the game and, and are the ones profiting off of that um, has been hurting us for decades. Um, I think while that's also happening, we have a system we've, Leah Stokes was talking about earlier, that this, like at the same time that climate instability has been increasing and increasing and emissions have been increasing and increasing over the last 40 years, we have also reached skyrocketing levels of inequality. Wages have stagnated for working people and middle-class people. We have uh, just unbelievable levels of inequality in this country. And attempting to solve the climate crisis by just decarbonizing a little bit over here while the inequalities still persist just exacerbates the underlying inequalities no matter what. Um, and so for us, it's... we are trying to tackle both of those things at once to say um, we can build economic prosperity while we also, you know, save ourselves and our planet and uh, address the climate crisis and the imminent threat. Um, so that's kind of part of it. And I think the other part of it is that there's the reality that tackling the climate crisis, um, while it has certainly improved Like we have definitely increased the amount that people are worried about the issue and want something to be done on it, Um, we're still struggling with it being like when push comes to shove, like a popular issue that people think should be the number one thing that presidents do when they get in office, right? Um, And when we look at the polling and we talk to people, the, the top issues for folks tend to be jobs in the economy, health, which makes a lot of sense. It's like the things that are the most proximal to our everyday lives, like how we're going to put food on the table, where we work, what our community looks like, what we're literally inhaling and imbibing into our bodies. Um, and so for a long time, I think the climate movement has made the mistake of trying to get people super excited about like decarbonization, as though that is a thing that anybody is excited about. Um, and trying to talk about the issue on the terms of the academics and the scientists and whatever, rather than listening and being like, what do people actually care about? And what are actually popular things? (laughs) And then why don't we try to address the problem um, in that frame instead? And I think we've, for the first time, I am seeing people who I would have never expected saying, we see ourselves in the Green New Deal not just environmentalists. We see ourselves in the Green New Deal. And I don't know if everything that's in that resolution, we will win, but I want to be a part of winning it. Um, And I'm also worried because I think there are a lot of academics, there's a lot of politician whisperers that really don't see that and don't understand that good policy without good politics is completely ineffectual and irrelevant.
2: So, yeah. I mean, that's both Did you want to say one more thing? Yeah.
7: Yeah, I mean, I
1: just... I slightly misunderstood the first 100 days question. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I think a lot of the work starts before the first 100 days, right? I mean, there's this... Mm devastating, devastating book um, written by this guy named Reed Hunt, um, which Daniel kindly recommended to me, um, (laughs) about the Obama transition. Uh, And, you know, the moral of the story is that a lot of what was decided um, throughout the Obama administration was decided in, like, December of 2008, right? Um, So, you know, if we get a progressive president in in, uh, 2020 and they're elected, um, it's really not worth much if we bring back Larry Summers and Rahm Emanuel uh, into the White House to make all the decisions about what happened, right? Like, we need, um, we need the right people at the table and, you know, a different way of thinking about governance. I think the last panel really um, hammered on the fact that, you know, it cannot be the same usual suspects um, writing any policy, but writing climate policy in particular. So figuring out, you know, what does it look like to really democratize um Democratize the state, right? Um, to have you know a, a more fluid relationship between the folks making policy mm. um, and the folks who have been working on these issues for years and years and years in environmental justice and climate justice communities, um, and you know, upward and, and onward, right? Um, so having you know a real um, a real sense that the people who are who have been thinking about this most uh, are given the power to really figure out what this transition looks like, um, and you know, not trusting
7: whatever like.
1: Wonk is plucked from Cap
7: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, to to do it. Can I say something about the 100 days thing, too? Uh, In the, like, sort of pre-100 days thing Mm -hmm. is uh, sometimes the thing that scares me the most about all of this is, like, what if we actually win in 2020 and then have to pass something and, like, have to actually do the thing? And, like, will we just fight each other to death? And, like, will everything fall apart? And and will everyone just, uh, yeah, like, it just becomes a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's happened before. And I think that actually conversations like this, but like hundreds and maybe thousands of them happening in lots of places cross sectorally. Is essential, and I think relationships, by far, are going to be one of the things that get us through this. Um, in a way where we're actually able to talk out differences, come to the table, build like the social fabric of this whole thing, so that when push comes to shove, we have that to lean back on, rather than uh, kind of getting into a place where we're like in our camps and then have to fight. Um, so I just think that this conversation, but also this needs to happen, like with labor. This should be happening in environmental justice communities. We should be building, like we should be using this moment where like maybe there's this umbrella thing that lots of people see themselves as part of to actually establish those relationships so that when we have to do the damn thing, we can do it with grace and with compassion and like together.
2: But that's both like the perfect place to end us, and we're also happy to be out of time. I see David Roberts is trying to get back on stage. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh my God. My God. <laughs> I just the white conscience. a small correction. Earlier I said Gingrich killed the Congressional Research Service. That's false, it was the Office of Technology. <laughs> Assessment, OTA, not CRS. No one else cares about this but me, but it will haunt me forever. Did you get canceled on Twitter for this?
5: <laughs>
2: um, so that's now, I guess, where we're going to end it. Uh, so I, I want you to help join me in thanking our incredible panel, our, the incredible panels all day.